This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Jennifer Kyung Lee, your host, and with me here is Elaine Shea Chow, who will be talking about her book, This Orientation, a novel published by Penguin Press in March 2022. In This Orientation, we meet Ingrid Yang, an eighth-year PhD student in East Asian Studies, struggling to write a dissertation on canonical Chinese-American poet Xiao Wen Chow, Her situation is made all the more distressing by the fact that her student loan deferral is soon to expire, and it's dawning on her that she was never interested in Xiao Wenchao in the first place. Rather, her advisor convinced her that this would be a good good and marketable dissertation topic. Then one day, a strange discovery in the archives leads her to a shocking discovery. What is it, and what happens? You'll have to read this orientation to find out. Thank you so much for joining me, Elaine. Thank you so much for having me, Jennifer, and thank you for that intro. I loved how you set up the novel. Yeah, um, it's a fantastic novel, so I hope people go read it, but I was wondering if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure, yeah. Um, So I'm a fiction writer, primarily. Um, I'm from California. That's where I grew up, Um, and I also lived in uh, France for a while and Taiwan, and now I live in New York. Um, so when I was an undergrad, I studied English. And I also did a, a master's, what was like a one-year master's in English. Lit, and for a while, I was doing a PhD. Um, and this was in, in France. But I dropped out. And I got my MFA in fiction from NYU. So that I graduated in 2019. And yeah, have been doing all sorts of other different little jobs, uh, working in bookstores. I was cat sitting, background acting. Um, so yeah, that's sort of where I am right now. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so I'll start with our usual big question. What brought you to this project? Um, well, so I knew I wanted to write a novel set on a campus. And so when I was first envisioning the novel, I knew it would be a big part of it would be about Ingrid's uh, very complicated relationship with white men. And then as I was sort of plotting that out, 
I heard about this incident in, uh, th so this was all in 2015. Um, do you know who Michael Derrick Hudson is? Have I'm not sure. Of, does that ring a bell? Okay, well. <laughs> yeah, tell us more. <laughs> he, he outed himself, basically. He had pretended to be a Chinese woman named Yi Fen Chao. Oh, yeah, yeah. Last name. Yeah. Yeah, spelled like mine. And he had stolen this name directly from a classmate of his who he grew up with. Um, and the whole reasoning behind this was he was struggling to get one of his poems published and it had some Chinese mythology in it. And I think it only got rejected a handful of times. But his solution was to change his name. You know, I guess he, he thought clearly the problem is not my poem. Clearly the problem is I'm a white man. Um, and so he submitted the poem under this name and it got accepted into a diversity issue of an anthology. And he just quickly outed himself as saying, you know, look, look what I did. I don't know. Almost as if he wanted to say he, you know, oh, the system's rigged or something. Um, and of course, I was very infuriated by this incident, as I think a lot of Asian Americans were, because we were like, "Yeah, you can't just steal, try to steal our identity when it benefits you, um, and then go about in your life as a white man <laughs> with just all the privileges of being a white man. Yeah. But you know, when you want to get something out of it, let me pretend to be Asian you know, for five minutes." Um, and yeah, that got me thinking, what if a poet did this, but became so famous, sort of unexpectedly famous, uh, he didn't want to lose his career and everything he had worked for, and started to wear actual yellow face to basically catch up with his own lie. Yeah, yeah, I think... I think we're starting to see, like, I, I, I think disorientation is one of, um, yeah, a number of books that um, are, yeah, coming from a similar place right now. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm really excited. Um, so in disorientation, Ingrid is a PhD student in an East Asian studies department, um, while her nemesis, Vivian Vo, is writing a dissertation on the same Chinese-American poet as Ingrid, but in a post-colonial studies department. And Ingrid notes that she had never gotten to know the few former PhD students in Asian-American studies because they had all slowly but surely transferred to comp lit or English or post-colonial studies rather than stay in the department that had subsumed them. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about the decision to keep Ingrid in East Asian studies, despite even like her not being proficient in Chinese. Right. So when, yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it reminded me that in normal graduate level studies, one must be proficient. And I think <laughs> something like two languages in that department, if I'm something Yeah, I like think that. East Asian studies especially tends to want like a At high level of proficiency one. in one language and then a yes, secondary language. exactly. Yeah. So I bypassed this in the name of fiction. <laughs> I loved it. So, yeah, I really wanted to know, like, yeah. Yeah, for a few different reasons. So one of them was I, I wanted to poke fun at the rampant Orientalism that just, I think, is in our culture and American 
culture, um, white culture, that's also really prevalent in East Asian studies. Um, and I thought East Asian studies specifically is where a character like Michael Bartholomew could thrive because he's uh, has just made China his entire personality, right? From yeah. the way he dresses and he's he's always trying to show off his language skills. Um, so part of it was I needed East Asian studies to write a character like him and poke fun at all of that. And um, the other reason I think is because even though technically Xiao and Chao could be studied in an Asian American studies program, that couldn't exist at Barnes because they'd have to then reckon with yeah. this terrible secret uh, they've kept hidden and they'd actually have to think about Asian people as people. <laughs> Because I think when you're in an EA department, Asian people are often and cultures are held at an arm's length, like foreign, exotic, you know, meant to be studied as as an other, right? Different yeah. from America or whatever. So I don't know if I'm not yeah, I don't know if all EA departments operate this way, but in the novel for this Orientalism to just completely thrive, it had to really happen in an EA department. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even, I don't know, I know, like, when I was an undergrad, like, my school, we had an East Asian Studies department, but, like, if you wanted to do Asian American Studies, like, that, like, there was really no, I don't think there was a clear place to go, because um, we had a program um, on, like, ethnicity and race studies, but it, it didn't have, like, a departmental status, so, the program like they didn't they couldn't hire faculty like they they really had very little power it was just like a, a major but oh, wow. without like any of the things that would typically go along with the major oh that's so interesting um, wow okay and, yeah I mean I think schools schools deal with this very differently so I think I, I don't know like I can imagine a world where like yeah Barnes is like one iteration of like how schools have dealt with um kind of the lack of an institutional place for um, Asian American studies. So I, I don't know. I really love that part. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. It's all very, and I think in the real world, it, it, this is all very purposeful, right? Because yeah. Asian American studies would have to reckon with all the ways white people, white supremacy have hurt us. But East yeah. Asian studies, you, they don't get have to bring themselves into it. They can just think of Asia and the East, quote unquote, as this far away distant land where they're not really implicated. Yeah. I think a mm. lot of undergrads struggle with that. Like I, I know students and friends who, for example, like were interested in learning about Asia because it they thought it would help them like learn about, you know, their family or kind of like the history of like how they ended up in the US. So they would like go to East Asia or yeah, like East Asian studies classes or programs, but then kind of the people there would be like like why do you care about like learning about like Japanese internment or like even like these like Asian American studies quote-unquote like topics because of that kind of firewall between um yeah the two fields <laughs> um but okay I don't want to call out any random strangers that I don't know but there's a review of disorientation 
on the Barnes and Noble website by a user named C.E. Chang, who wrote, and I quote, my favorite character by far was Vivian. I aspire to be like her and she is so relatable. Um, so personally, I liked Vivian. Um, she She's this character in Disorientation who um, is, um, I think as I mentioned in the earlier question, she she's studying Xiao and Chao, but from um, like a more Asian American studies and like post-colonial studies perspective than Ingrid. And she has a really strong set of political commitments that she is very vocal about. Um, and, and I like her in terms of what she does for the story and the plot, and especially the energy with which she acts on her beliefs. But as like a like a person, I didn't find her like very likable the way this reviewer found her. And definitely at points she made me wonder like, am I like that? And then hope that I I'm not. And so I'm really curious what it was like to write Vivian, um, and where the idea for her came from. Um, I love this question, and yeah, shout out to C. E. Chang because. I think that that I love that. I think it's it's unexpected that my um the love for her, I think I hope is in the novel, but I think it sort of takes a while to dig through because we're so deeply entrenched in, in Ingrid's Ingrid. Exactly. Yeah. And Ingrid approaches her from the get-go is yeah. like, I hate you. Although <laughs> I think and I think in Vivian's head though, she's just like, Who are you? <laughs> do I know you? And Ingrid has this whole story in her head. Um, But Vivian was a tricky character for me to write. And in earlier versions of the novel, so I wrote three versions of the novel. And in the second version, Vivian's character was someone named Jeremy Nguyen that Ingrid sort of develops a crush on. and in that version of the novel, he was the one character who was left completely untouched, meaning the satirical pen, you know, did not graze him. <laughs> and the reasoning behind that, I think, was I was worried people would think that if I did, you know, put that lens on him, it would signal that I didn't agree with his politics. Um, but at you know, at the end, though, that version of the novel, I think it felt uneven because um, everyone else got that satirical sort of lens on them, except Jeremy. <laughs> and it just didn't make sense. And um, in this version, the character of Vivian becomes a much more heightened version of Jeremy, where I was able to turn that lens on her. And I think um, that made the novel more even and also uh, it's just sort of more delicious, right? If you yeah. if you have the chance to sort of uh, poke at something, I think it's it's hard not to uh, hard not to give in to that temptation. Um, but I think I was able to write Vivian because I too, like you, have thought, oh, I've I've been Vivian <laughs> like, yeah. on some Facebook groups. In 2016 or 70, like I've been, yeah, I've been that. So (laughs) I think um, being comfortable with that world, because when I was living in Paris, I started organizing and protesting and it became a world I was familiar with. And I think that was how I felt okay doing it Um, and writing her. I think if, 
if it was completely foreign to me, and if I had no experience or empathy for Vivian and what she goes through, I think I, I couldn't and probably shouldn't have written it, you know? Um, but that's why I was able to. And I do hope by the end of the novel, when Ingrid is able to kind of get out of her own head and insecurities, that we see Vivian has had a really hard time and, you know, she's been on different antidepressants and basically had a mental breakdown. (laughs) Poor Vivian. I think they, yeah, she goes through um, quite a lot of hard stuff, just, just like Ingrid too. Um, But yeah, she's, she's a fun one, Vivian. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think what you're saying also just, I don't know, it points towards how complex the characters are and how well I felt like you knew them. Like even as um, it's a satire and so they're all like caricatures, but like you really get like them. And I, I feel like that kind of comes across in the story where I don't know, I it's weird. Like I was like, I care about all these characters, even as like they're so flawed and like you see how flawed they are, which is kind of I think why I was like, well, I don't I hope I'm not like any of these characters exactly but like I could see myself in all of them oh that's so nice to hear yeah I wanted them all to be flawed uh (laughs) because I guess you know I mean that's how we are in real life and um I get yeah hopefully that does make them more relatable even when they're not likable which I think is like which I think makes for good reading, right? <laughs> and, and like, I cared about well, them. It was just like, yeah. I, I, it was like, you care about them because they're flawed in a sense, because you know that like, you know, because if someone is perfect, it's like, you know, as a character or like, when when you don't see the flaws as prominently, it's like, harder to care about them because they don't feel real. Exactly, um, but in this case, yeah. it was like, yeah, they felt really real. Um, and they're no fun to write. A perfect, the yeah. flawless character is is just dull on the page. <laughs> yeah, that part too. Um, yeah, is there, I don't know, is, I think you told us a bit about the process of writing Vivian, but is there a character that you especially enjoyed or struggled with writing? Yeah, I would say all three white men, Michael, Steve, and John, <laughs> They're all sort of terrible. Um, And I think they were both fun and hard to write. Fun because I finally got to wield power over men like that, you know, and portray them the way I see them in a way that they would never portray themselves because Michael and Stephen in the real world, they're the ones with the voice, you know, they're the ones publishing their books about Asia and Asian people. Um, and not not me, like not Ingrid, right? So I really got a kick out of having the last word, <laughs> so to speak, um, and getting, yeah, they were under my thumb. That's, I feel like that's weird to say. But, I love that. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, it was hard to write because they are gross, you know, their, their thought processes are, are, uh, really troubling and reminded me a lot of the alt-right because when I was writing the novel it was really the bulk of it was between 2016 and 2020 and during that period we were just bombarded every day with people on the news distorting the truth saying terrible 
things, but yet they would present themselves as the good guy, right? Um, and so that's what I wanted to try to invoke with these characters is they they part of their evilness comes from the fact that they swear up and down that they're not evil, right? And they'll sit and they'll use different things to justify this. Like Michael starts using his Chinese wife as yeah. a oh, I loved her. Of- she was so unexpected. Like, <laughs> but yeah, she's badass. Um, but yeah, he starts to use her as this blanket shield for any any criticisms of me as a white man and my relationship with race. I can make you know, I can destroy all of that by just saying, "Look, I have an." Chinese wife and this is so problematic and false for so many different reasons and yet this happens so often (laughs) there's actually a Twitter account um, that I really like called my Asian wife and it's just screenshots of white men they could be talking about the most random thing like it could be a recipe it could be anything and somehow they just need to say, well, my Asian wife. It's interesting because it, it it goes with, like, white women and, like, Asian husbands as well. I feel like that also happens. Oh, um, yeah. That is now <laughs> definitely taking off. I think. Yeah. Um, growing more and more every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's this really incredible scene in the novel, which I, I won't specify here just because I don't want to have spoilers for listeners who haven't read it yet. But Inger talks about the Third World Liberation Front. And for listeners who may not be familiar, that's the name of two coalitions of Asian, Black, Chicano, and Native American students that went on strike. One group at San Francisco State University in 1968 and another group at UC Berkeley in 1969. And these groups demanded a third world college within their universities that offered a really radical vision of people of color learning about their own histories and stories and having control over things like hiring admissions and admissions to the university. What they got instead were ethnic studies programs, and that was the birth of ethnic studies as we know it today. So after reading disorientation, I pulled up the strike demands of the Third World Liberation Front at Berkeley, and their very first demand was that a Department of Asian Studies be set up that is, quote unquote, controlled by Asian people. Um, Clearly, and I think disorientation really illustrates this for us, we're still really far from that vision. But I was wondering, Elaine, if you could tell us a bit about that vision and what students were fighting for and are continuing to fight for at universities and are not getting. And I hope you can answer this question in kind of like an expansive way. So beyond just, I don't know, specific demands, but like what that mm. really means or looks like for students. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can only guess what, what they were thinking, but I have, I'll, you know, say what I, from my point of view, what I think it is they're getting at. But yeah, I learned about the third world liberation front through iHotel, which is this amazing epic novel by Karen Tay Yamashita. And it's like 600 pages long, but it's definitely worth reading. And I was, when I read it, I was just so amazed to uncover this part of Asian American history that no one had ever taught me. I'd never heard about it. And it did sadden me to know that, I was so impressed, first of all, to know that these demands are being made in the 60s. But then I was saddened that today, 
uh, it seems a lot of it has not come true. <laughs> and um, I also found out that a lot of universities, and this is sort of touched on in the novel, but they were actually very nervous about this. They, they at really, really did not like that Asian, Black, and Latinx communities were coming together. This just terrified them. <laughs> I think it terrifies a lot of white institutions today. But yeah, it is sad that like in EA departments, they continue to be dominated by white professors. And if you just go on the faculty website of, I think, nearly every university, it's this is the case. Um, so I think by making the demand that we want an Asian department to be controlled by Asian people is that students were sick of their own culture being taught in an exotified Orientalist way because the second we control the narrative, we're no longer looking at ourselves from the outside in, right? We're already in. And right now, I think these departments are structured so that we're always looking from the outside in. Like I have a friend who's a PhD candidate in Japanese studies, and most of their cohort is they're all white people. <laughs> And I was recently talking with my friend about this and um, my friend brought up what is at stake for these white students in doing this extensive research, uh, becoming fluent in these languages, devoting their lives to this other culture. Um, and they were saying, because for us, the stakes are very clear. Our own lives are at stake, right? Our history, our family, our friends, like tangible repercussions are that's why we're doing the research and trying to change things. Right. But for other, these other people, it's just like, is this just, are you, you just want to be more interesting? Like, what? <laughs> I don't understand what is it at stake for you. And so I think if Asian studies is controlled by Asian people, the department would have to change. Right. And it would be concerned with our actual lives and our histories and how our history informs our, you know, how we move through the world today. So the stakes are automatically raised. And I think all, everything would, would change after that, right? We're no longer like a distant, exotified, inscrutable culture. We're, we're actually living it. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Yeah, and also I think, I don't know, one of the things that surprised me was um you know like the way I think universities have tried to like I don't know, incorporate like Asian American ideas or perspectives have has been through like Asian American studies as very distinct from Asian studies um and like that's actually just not what these students were asking for that kind of surprised me because um I don't know the way I was taught about the third world liberation front as an undergrad was that like oh, like, these were students who um, wanted, like, Asian American studies to be a thing as, like, 
because Asians are American. Um, and like, that is important. But then I, I was so surprised. I was like, wait, they, they actually wanted Asian studies departments that are controlled by like Asian American students, um, which, yeah, it's also, um, yeah, also because I think like where there are like Asian people in um, like Asian studies departments, oftentimes like they're Asian student, like Asian international students, which is again, like kind of different than the perspective that I think like Ingrid and a lot of Asian Americans bring to, or like Asian Americans who grew up in the US bring to that work. So yeah, we're quite far from it, but <laughs> yeah. Um, thanks so much for, yeah, talking us through some of, yeah, the important. Yeah, there, I mean, there's, I'm not an yeah. expert at all. I don't, I don't, I did not study Asian American studies or ethnic studies or, you know, I was sadly just studying a lot of white people in English. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm happy to offer my, my little thoughts. <laughs> yeah, English is, it's rough. I think about that because I, I tried to be an English major and then I left for conflict. Um, so yeah, it spoke to me to hear Ingrid thinking and talking about people who are like trying to find a good department for what they want to do because there is no good department. Yeah, um, that's the yeah. lesson. There is no good department. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there, there's a scene in Disorientation where Ingrid's advisor, Michael, um, has observed that Ingrid is struggling to make progress on her dissertation. Um, and he suggests that they we meet weekly to discuss Xiao Wen Chao's poetry, and Ingrid says no. And her advisor responds by asking if she's struggling psychologically, and if maybe she should see a psychiatrist for Prozac, since one in three PhD students is on antidepressants. And something that that moment highlighted for me was just how often um, there are these really structural and institutional failings um, and I think, you know, once you've read the book, it also shows up as this really, in this case, like an interpersonal violence as well. Um, these moments and issues are recast as individual problems or even treated as like mental health issues where the burden is on the student to figure out how to continue functioning in this really messed up university that wasn't ever really meant to be a space where they could thrive. And so given how much of disorientation is about moments like this that are hurtful or gaslighty interactions, I was wondering what it was like to write the novel for you. Um, yeah, I, I think it was really liberating, honestly, because I was angry. I was angry from events happening in my own life um, and being subjected to microaggressions and being gaslit and more intense aggressions when living in France, because that place is just a whole other story. <laughs> we can have a, a separate podcast about that. But um, <laughs> I, and also reading on the news constantly, you know, what was happening. I was there. There was a lot of anger, I think. Um, yeah, not just within academia, but just America as a whole, I yeah. guess. And um, often that is sort of magnified in academia as its own little world. Um, but yeah, I think it ended up being cathartic for me to turn to the page as a place where 
I could be in control and I could repaint what others thought of as normal as like, oh, actually this is really fucked up. And I get to have the last word on that. <laughs> uh, but there were scenes, I think, like with Michael and Steven, especially that were, I guess, in reading them, like, like I in a way wanted them to be triggering. <laughs> but then I think at times it was like, oh, this is, this is, is this triggering to write? I can't tell. I don't know. But um, yeah, it, it, I, w I would say overall, it, even if it might seem odd that uh, writing about it rather than going through it, which was happening to me anyways, you know, writing about it was, was liberating. And I think what a lot of writers do is we, we process things through writing. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't, I don't know, but I, I guess, um, because you're taking experiences and putting them in a new light that I, I think it ends up being, yeah, cathartic. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that. And I think as a reader, like it came across to me, like I, part of how I, I, I don't know, I ended up asking this question is I, I described the premise of this orientation to someone. I was like, oh, I think you'd love this book. And she was like, oh, that sounds so triggering. And I, I was like, um, like as a reader, I, I found it to be a really like liberating experience to read and really not triggering in that way. And so Oh, good. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that That's that was the experience of writing it, because I think for me, like, that was the experience of, of reading it. <laughs> oh, that's a relief to hear. Yeah, I, did, I don't want it to to be a trigger. I think it, there's definitely uncomfortable moments, but I think because the, the satire is skewing so obviously in one direction, yeah. you know, that, like, yeah, these these white men are terrible. Um, that hopefully no one feels like unsafe when reading that. Yeah, you know, it was, because it's it a fun read. Okay, good. It's like, yeah, we are we are definitely not on their side, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, not to give every anything away, but I, hopefully that becomes really clear by the end. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was wondering if you could just tell us a bit more about why satire and how you came to write in the genre and how it lets you tell the story you want to tell. Yeah, this is a fun question because I did not plan on writing a satire at all. I just thought I was going to write a very serious, somber novel when I was meticulously planning it. And then when I actually sat down to write it, I was like, what's happening? Like, what is this voice? Um, because in the first version, and it's a lot more toned down now, but the first version, it was still in the third person. But the narrator was very opinionated. You know, it was one of those narrators where you were like, who are you? You're a person. You can't just be like a kind of disembodied voice. And why are you so snarky? And um, so I, I think it didn't work for, for those reasons. But I think the reason it came out that way was because it probably would have been too painful to write straight on. and making it satirical gave me distance so I could, you know, hold things at arm's length and honestly also get through it by laughing, right? I had to make myself laugh. <laughs> and I think as I started writing, as it became clear, like, oh, this is a satire, I was like, oh, 
this is actually great because I'm the one, you know, with the power now, like I have no power in the real world. Um, <laughs> and this, uh, you know, in my little Microsoft Word document, like this is the only time I actually have power, especially over anyone like Michael or Stephen or John. Um, so yeah, I think it ended up being the the only form I could get the story out. Yeah. Yeah. I love the, I don't know, your description of power because, yeah, I don't know. It occurs to me now that like probably like my own, I don't know, interactions with like classes and professors, like I feel like disorientation captures it so much better than, um, yeah, really anything. <laughs> like I feel like Aww. it's it's weird because I think a lot of people's, um, and for listeners, so I I just finished undergrad, so that that's really all I can speak of too. But um, going into undergrad, like I don't know, a lot of people will say like blah 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 about like learning things or like <laughs> like things that are supposed to happen in college, and then like you actually go through it, and like none of that happens, and like all this other wacky stuff happens. Mm. And I feel like that kind of was like disorientation, disorientation where like all the things that are supposed to happen, like, they still kind of happen. Like, there's, I remember, like, Michael, you know, he's basically, like, oh, like, I control, like, everything that happens. So, like, you know, like, he basically is, like, if I want you to pass, like, you'll pass to Ingrid as far as, like, (laughs) academically. And so the story really is about, like, all of the non, like, uh, like, the actual, like, tangible, the actual tangible, like, oh, this is a degree or whatever that's supposed to happen is, like, not the point. Right, um, right. It's his worldview, <laughs> right? He's sort of peddling out what he sees as the correct way to be an Asian person is to be obedient yeah, and to uh, sort of spawn more generations of, quote-unquote, model minorities who don't protest, who don't... Um, link up arms with other minorities, right? Yeah. And are just like happily, just happy to be with the white man. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm also, I'm really curious, where did the title come from for this orientation? Oh, this was a late title. It was one of those, it, it had other titles that I'm honestly too embarrassed to ever say aloud what they were. <laughs> but this one just came from a lot of brainstorming um, I made like a giant list and was narrowing them down. So the last, the last two options were disorientation and disorienting. <laughs> and I took a poll with my friends and everyone said disorientation, but yeah, so it's a play on the word, um, obviously being confused, right? Things not appearing what they appear to be, um, orientalism to play on that. And then um another friend was like oh an orientation it's like academic schools have orientations I was like yes I that was purposeful too I'm adding that (laughs) it reminded me of disorientation guides I don't know if they were a thing when you were in school but like when I was an undergrad um you know you have like orientation and orientation guides and then Nowadays, it's pretty customary for a lot of schools to have student groups that informally have like a quote unquote disorientation guide. What? That's so yeah. cool. I've never heard of that. What? And it like gives like 
it tells you like kind of how to navigate resources and like how to steal food from like dining halls and like student groups to join. That was it. That that for me is what came to mind when I I saw the title. So I was just very curious. That's um, amazing. Oh wow! I wish I had that when I was an undergrad. We did not have anything so cool. Disorientation. So is it unofficial? Like the university? It's yeah. Yeah, the university does not approve. <laughs> No, it's it's like zines, but like it's it's your disorientation. I guide. love that so much. Oh, thank you for telling me that. I love that. Now I'm gonna have to pretend I knew about it all along. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I I love that at the end of the novel. Um, and I hope this is not a spoiler, since even from the premise, um, I think it's really hard to imagine Ingrid staying in academia. But mm-hmm. after grad school. Ingrid leaves the university and she works at a waffle dog factory where she earns minimum wage, working in a gift shop and giving museum tours to visitors. So I I really love that part. It was the first time in the whole novel where I stopped feeling super like concerned about her and her future. (laughs) But, But I was wondering what it felt like to write the ending. How did it feel for you to end Ingrid's story in this way? First of all, I'm so glad you felt that for Ingrid that like, this stress you felt could fall away at, at long last. And I really felt that too for Ingrid. She's really put through the ringer. Um, so I think I always knew Ingrid was going to leave academia, but the novel, this latest version of the novel, it originally ended at chapter 20, you know, right after the the dissertation defense. And that was it. And then it was in later revisions where it, became clear an epilogue would really make sense and would tie things in together. And yeah, it just felt right to have Ingrid, I think, um, I don't know if the right word is revert. (laughs) I think that's what we might normally call it. But, you know, moving back in with her parents and working at a job that is primarily where teenagers are working, right? Yeah. It's a minimum wage job. And she's starting at square one. I think instead of us seeing this as, oh, this is a step backwards or this is really frightening, that starting at square one can be really liberating. Um, And I think it was a little bit inspired by the trajectory that I took after I quit my PhD and started writing fiction again. So all of that felt a little insane, right? Like a risk of what what am I doing? And I applied to work at a bookstore. So I was working, you know, at a minimum wage job in France, although that in France, it comes with way better benefits. At least (laughs) you get paid vacation five weeks anyways. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then, like I was saying, after my MFA program ended in New York, I also was going back to a bunch of different kind of side hustles. And I worked at a bookstore again uh, for a little bit. So yeah, I think Ingrid's academic career had taken up so much of her mind space and her emotional energy for so long. It had been She just fixated on it that I think she needed at the end of the novel, not a career, you know, just that is not going to do anything for her that's not what she needs to think about or worry about she just needs a job (laughs) not a career and you know that's fine for as she I think is that first year she's basically healing right 
when I think about it, like, yeah, she got out of this relationship with this abusive man. Um, and then when you look at her past relationships before then, they were all <laughs> So I'm like, she just needs a long break. <laughs> she doesn't have to work too hard and, you know, just, yeah, give some tour, tour uh, visits and enjoy some free waffle dogs <laughs> yeah yeah i loved it um so we might have already touched on this but i'm curious what was your favorite part of writing disorientation yeah um well this is cheesy to say but honestly my favorite parts were when i was fully immersed in my head and i wasn't thinking about is anyone ever going to read this? And is anyone ever going to publish it? You know, much less. Um, and I was just trying to make myself laugh. And there were times when I was just sitting alone in my room laughing to myself. <laughs> and yeah, I think now looking back, there was something so pure about that. Mm-hmm. Um, not that this happened all the time. I don't want to... <laughs> I'm like, yeah, for four years, guys, I was just hysterically <laughs> laughing my head off alone in my room. Like, no, that's <laughs> writing is really painful um, and long. And yeah, you really have to. How did a friend describe it one day? It's like that writing is like looking in a mirror at all your emotional baggage and history and just staring head on into it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I remember these moments where I was just like, ha ha ha, chuckling away. (laughs) And I wasn't worrying about, yeah, is this going to make other people laugh? Is this quote unquote good or bad? It was just about, can I make myself laugh? And that was all that mattered. Yeah. Those are some precious memories that seem so far away now. (laughs) Yeah. I think especially now that like, yeah, like once you publish your first book, it's like everything after that is like, like you know that there's an audience. Um, oh yeah, pressure's on. <laughs> yeah, the second book, there's a something called the the second book writer's block that's pretty infamous. I think because precisely because of that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, thanks so much. So we've taken up a lot of your time. So I just have one last question, which is, what are you working on next? Yeah, um, so my book deal with Penguin Press was a a two book deal. So after Disorientation, there's going to be a short story collection. And I think I'm I'm not even sure, but I think it's coming out in 2023. Um, And these are stories that I wrote primarily during the MFA program when I I was at NYU and it's called where are you really from um and the stories are of honestly a really mixed bag of there's some speculative and soft sci-fi um a horror story a, a fairy tale kind of remix um and the, and of course realist stories too like I just finished working on a new story that hopefully I can add to the collection that's um, based on my experiences doing background acting. So yeah, I think what ties it all together is, well, this is my pitch of what ties it all together, (laughs) you know, that all the characters are Asian and Asian American and 
hopefully explores, you know, more issues that, um, that we're going through and that I was interested in. Um, but yeah, it's actually, I think tonally, it, it's very different from disorientation, but more content wise, you know, ex- similar. Yeah. yeah, I guess I still have similar obsessions. <laughs> yeah, that sounds super exciting. And I, I'm so excited to see what you do in yeah, many, many genres beyond satire. I'm, I, I loved, yeah, and with, but with the same ideas that you've been thinking about. So thanks awesome. so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you, Jennifer. Thank you so much for reading and being such a thoughtful and smart reader of the novel. Yeah. Take care, everyone.